This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line and so glad that we can be together. If you're a new listener, I want to encourage you to feel free to call us. The number locally, again, is 843-525-1859. And when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can just dictate your question. We get a lot of email questions, and you can email us this morning directly here into the studio. And that email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. If you do call, we do give live callers preference. Again, you can dictate, or if you'd like to go on the air, we're happy to receive it uh, in that fashion. So if there's a question you have as you've been studying God's Word or a challenge in your personal spiritual life that you'd like biblical counsel on, we'll do our best to respond. So, Rick, uh, we've got a number of questions even left over from last time, so let's go ahead and we'll get started. Indeed. Anthony from Mount Vernon, uh, Maine. I didn't know there was a Mount Vernon, Maine. Yeah, there's a Mount Vernon in about every state. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, Says, this is a follow-up to a question that I had submitted previously. In response to my prior question, it was suggested that I listen to the sermon presented on January 13th, which I did, However, the most difficult part of my question remains. Regarding whether women may be pastors, there seems to be a conflict between the prohibition in 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 35, not allowing women to teach or speak in the church, and allowance to teach and prophesy in Titus 2.3 and 4, Acts 2.17 and 18, and 1 Corinthians 11.5. I need help with this question because our church is currently searching for a pastor, And as a leader in the church, I want to help the church make the right decision. Thank you. All right, Anthony, I appreciate your call today. And let me just see if I can respond to your question. Uh, An oft-asked question concerns the first passage that you quote here. And so I'm just turning there. It's 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus comprise what we typically refer to as the pastoral epistles. And they give us wise counsel on how to manage God's church. And uh, here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, a woman must receive instruction quietly with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And to show that this was not just some unique situation to what Timothy faced in the church at Ephesus as some so-called Christian feminists would like us to believe, but that this was a timeless principle. He reminds us that it was not Adam who was first created, but Eve. So Eve was created by God as a helpmate for Adam to come alongside as a completer. And she's of great value to God as much as uh, Adam is. So the Bible affirms the equality of men and women. But even in the beginning, God Dis- uh, differentiated the roles that men had 
even in the fall, uh, God re-expressed those roles. He reminded Adam that he would be the one who would provide his home by the sweat of his brow. Now work, instead of being tirelessly joyful, would become much more difficult as a reminder that sin had entered into the world. And even even the delivery of a baby now would not be pain-free, but very pain, a very painful process. So everything changed when uh, sin entered into the world. But there's a reminder right off in the created order, Adam was called to be the head. And then secondly, when that headship is ignored, uh, there's problems. And so then he goes on to say, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So Adam was not deceived at the fall. In fact, his sin was greater in that he sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew precisely what he was doing. But Eve opened herself up to deception in that she took the role of headship. She was the one dialoguing with the devil over biblical doctrine. And that's something her head, her protector, should have been doing with her uh, in terms of taking the leadership. But because he abdicated his responsibility, Eve was deceived. And then he affirms women by saying women will be preserved, sanctified is the um, Greek word that's used, uh, through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. In other words, he's reminding them that women have a different role, and it's a high role. Uh, A woman who carries out part of what God created her for. Men can't give birth to babies. Only women can. And that's a high calling. Women have the opportunity to shape the life of a young man or a young woman and to prepare them to be leaders in the church. And so churches that ignore that, who allow women to be pastors, and if they function as a woman should, where they have children. To be a true shepherd of God and then to have children is to force a woman to abdicate her responsibilities as a mother. She can't really function as a mother if she is a pastor, not if she's going to do a pastor's role. And that brings great problems into the home, and that's not God's desire. And there are many other reasons why, of course, God would have a man to be a pastor and not a woman. And so he'll go on in the rest of the dialogue here, beginning in three one. And of course, remember, these chapter divisions are artificial. They're added to help us find our way around the Bible. And he gives the qualifications then for a pastor. So it's just logical what uh, flows here. And these are male qualifications. Uh, He, a man a pastor, an elder, an overseer, a bishop, uh, all terms used interchangeably in the New Testament of the same office has to be, among other things, the husband of one wife. Uh, that's, a, that's a distinctly male role, as the pronouns reflect all the way through chapter 3, verse 1, uh, through verse 7, where he gives the qualifications for an elder. Now, uh, your question goes further. You bring in a couple of things. Um, the Acts 2 passage, let's see, they're referring to Acts two seventeen and 18. Okay, that's the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Let me just turn there. And if I remember, he is quoting the prophet Joel. Uh, it says, um, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea, 
and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. And the word men here is the word anthropoi, anthropos. It's being used generically. Sometimes the word men in the Bible is used in deference to a woman. These people, you could say, they're not drunk, and that's what some were accusing them of uh, because of the unique miracles and speech that accompanied those miracles. You had, for instance, someone who, to put it in modern terms, knew only English, and all of a sudden they're speaking a language they had never learned before. They're speaking Chinese. And so he uses the term glossolalia that refers to a language, and then he uses the word dialectos, which refers to a dialect within a language. Uh, So not only did they learn the language, they learned the dialect of the language. Uh, So there's Chinese, and then there's Mandarin Chinese, and many various dialects, and that was expressed. And so some mocked and said, oh, they're drunk. And Peter says, look, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. People don't get drunk at 9. And he reminds them that this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days. And by the way, the last days refer to that time frame that begins with the day of Pentecost. The, the day of Pentecost marks the last days. Christ, ever since the day of Pentecost, could have returned at any moment. His return has always been imminent because prophetically nothing is ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back from heaven. He could come back today. Now, there's another term called the latter days, and that always refers to the last of the last days. And sometimes contextually in the Old Testament, the phrase last days can refer to the end of time as well. But in one sense, because Christ's return is is imminent, we've been in the last days. And I believe now as God is setting the stage in the world, and we're seeing before our eyes living prophecy, we are now in the last of the last days. And it shall be in the last days, God said, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So here the ability to prophesy is not restricted to men only, but also to women as well. So going now to the First Corinthians passage, and, and I appreciate this person. They're engaged in leadership in a local church, and they're, they want to make a a wise decision, and there's obviously some people in the church who think that women should be potential candidates to take the past pastor's place, and that's popular thinking. It's popular thinking, but it's not biblical thinking. Now, let me just say first, let's define what we mean by prophesy, and, and let's define what we mean by silent. The question comes from 1 Corinthians 14, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. So his question is, well, number one, if a woman could prophesy as the prophet Joel said and as Peter said happened on Pentecost as the 120 men and women alike came out and literally prophesied, um, secondly, the, the phone call will have to wait, um, but secondly, uh, they, beyond prophesy, uh, are able to speak in other ways in the church. It, just back a few chapters, 
he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesies, prophesying disgraces her head, uh, namely her husband. And so when Paul says a woman should be silent in the church, it's obviously a qualified silence. Let's give Paul some credit that he's not so discombobulated as some liberal scholars would make us to believe and that this is just a contradiction in the Bible where he's just said in chapter 11 that when a woman does pray and prophesy in church, her head ought to be covered. So um, how does that flesh itself out? Well, prophesying, remember, this was a time in human history when the Bible had not yet been written. It was uh, being unfolded over the course of Uh, about 50 years, where Matthew writes his gospel and John writes the final book of Revelation around 95 AD. And so at that point, there were many issues that the church would have question on that came under the new covenant and they needed direction. And so the prophet Joel had already said that women would prophesy, and we see that in 1 Corinthians 11. And so when you prophesied, it would be like you standing up in the church today and reading scripture. Can a woman stand up in the church today and read the Bible? Yes, she can. That would be an equivalent of New Testament prophesying. Now, there are other expressions of prophesying, but that's one legitimate expression that a woman could do, as illustrated in Acts 2, where they literally spoke of the mighty deeds of God. They were literally, in essence, by the Spirit of God, speaking things that would be equivalent to the written word of God at that point. Now, it's interesting, there comes a point in the history of the church where the canon of Scripture is complete, and the gift of prophesying where someone is a direct conduit of revelation dries up. So whenever Paul says here, uh, the women are to keep silent in the church, as you know right off, it's a qualified silence. Why? Because he's just said in 11.5, which is a fulfillment of Joel 2, which Peter quotes in Acts 2, Um, that they're going to prophesy. Number two, we know that um, they can not only prophesy, they can pray in church. We know, number three, based on Ephesians 5, that a woman can sing in church. She's commanded to sing, so that's not being silent. And we know the other text that you reference here is 1 Timothy 2.12, and that, of course, is in reference to older women teaching the younger women. So that's a function within the body of Christ. Older women are to teach, but they are to teach women and children. They are to be uh, those who bring up the next generation of men and women through their instruction. And so it's a qualified silent. And if you just look at the repeat of the word silent, he has already said back in, um, let's see, um, in verse 28, he's speaking about the gift of tongues and when it's done, only a few in uh, a service, two at the most three, and then only uh, one at a time, and only if someone can interpret. Otherwise, it's meaningless jargon. But if there's no interpreter, there must be the person who wants to speak the tongue must be silent. Let him speak to himself and to God. Um, And then he speaks about people who would prophesy in the church. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Why? Because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything should be confirmed. And so if someone stands up 
and they say, I am prophesying, thus saith the Lord. Remember, they don't have a plumb line. They don't have a canon of scripture in which to measure that at this point. Then there would be an affirmation by the other prophets. There would be a sense, yeah, this is a word from God. We agree. Um, because remember, Satan is a great imitator. And so in First John, it tells us to test the spirits to see if they be of God. Because Satan is a great duplicator, a great deceiver. And he can have his men who claim all kinds of wicked, evil things that are not God's men at all. So he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Why? Because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And then it's in that context, he says, the women are to keep silent in the church. Why is that? Again, the context is everything. And I, and I think the best explanation is the context. Paul has just permitted others in the congregation, namely prophets, to evaluate other prophets. And then he qualifies to say that a woman can't do this. She is to be silent. Why? Because if a man stands up and says, well, Joe, who just prophesied, um, let me tell you why it's true what he said. And he begins to expound maybe from Torah or from the, the prophets of the Old Testament and says, number one, this is consistent with previous revelation that God has given or whatever. Um, then he is moving into a teaching mode or if someone else stood up and said, oh, wait a minute. Joe, who just prophesied, prophesied falsely. This is not from God. This is not the Spirit of God, but this is a demonic spirit that is speaking here in our midst today. And that person would would then teach why um, they should not embrace this prophecy, and everything would be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Because at that point, a woman is moving into a teaching role. And she would be teaching and exercising authority over men. And in addition, as many commentators will often bring out, um, the way uh, Greeks especially, remember he's writing largely to Greeks. Uh, he is writing in the city of Corinth. This is largely a um, Gentile uh, town. There were some Jews here, but it's not a huge population. So it's largely a Gentile church. And so they had a style of teaching where you could stand up and you could ask a question and you could, in essence, challenge the person's teaching by the way you asked a question. And sometimes, even today, that can happen. Uh, A woman who then moves into a position of teaching challenges what a pastor says, not really asking a legitimate question, but asking a question in such a way to say that she differs with his teaching and uh, she, in that he is in error. And when she does that, then she's teaching and exercising authority over a man. And so, again, it's a qualified silence. Women are not permitted to speak, that is, to teach, you could say, based on the First Timothy 2 and the use of prophecy in the New Testament, but are to be subject, as the law says. What's the law? That's a reference to the Old Testament. He's already said in verse 21, in the law it's written, by the men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers. He's quoting the Old Testament in verse 21. 
And so he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, I think the 28th chapter. And so here is a reference to the law, and it goes really all the way back to Genesis 3.16, that women are subject to their husbands. And the assumption here is that the women are married, because most women get married. But of course, it applies across the board, just like in 1 Timothy 3, when he gives the qualifications for an elder, like in Titus 1. It's not an exclusion of single people any more than it's exclusion of a woman who might be single to be able to prophesy. But since the norm is to be married, he brings it back to her head, and she's called biblically in Torah to be submissive to the leadership of her husband. So to take all the air out of the balloon, this guy from, this brother from Maine, if you guys are looking for a woman pastor, you are looking in disobedience. You are doing something that God expressly says not to do. And not only does it go against God's created order, it basically puts people in a terrible situation. When you have women pastors in a church, you know what you're doing? You're making the little boys in the church effeminate. You are making them girly boys. We need men in the church. And I wouldn't want my children in a church where there is a woman pastor. I wouldn't want my grandchildren in a church where there's a woman pastor. We need male leadership. We need men modeling manhood. And as my wife has been teaching on Wednesdays um, with Raising Godly, what's the, what's the title of the uh, series, Rick? Growing Girls. Growing Girls. And it's really a Growing Godly Girls. Uh, she reminded us uh, from the prophet Isaiah, the women that she's teaching, that it's a judgment of God in a nation when women take the roles of men. That's, that's a judgment of God. That's not a blessing from God as, you know, we've got women today We've got our Beth Moores who are standing up in front of congregations and they say, well, I'm under the authority of the pastor here. Listen, no pastor has authority to give a woman authority that God expressly forbids. And so she's modeling the wrong thing, traveling the country. She wasn't at home raising her kids and she created a disastrous model. Her and many others like him, Joyce Meyer and scores of others, that have violated the clear, plain teaching of the Word of God. So, Anthony, uh, dig in, uh, express your male leadership in love, get the women to study the Scriptures with you, listen to my message on 1 Timothy 3, and I, I preached one recently, but if you really want to dig in, go back to searchthescriptures.org, click on search by scripture, click on First Timothy. And I did three sessions just on this issue where I go through every passage in the Bible that the so-called Christian feminists use. And it's opened the door really for all kinds of evil in our day. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next. All right, we've got a live caller. We're going to call back in just a second. But this question that came in from Jamie in Cleveland, Ohio, is kind of a dovetail. Okay. And it would seem obvious what the answer would be, but I, I don't know whether there's a distinction between a pastor that is over the congregation or one that's just called a pastor. So the question goes as follows. I'm attending a church where the married pastor and wife are called pastors. I learned that a woman has a different role in the church and she cannot be a pastor. They seem to be okay with everything else, but this bothers me. Is this a reason to leave a church? And another concern, a pastor mentioned Andy Stanley and T.D. Jakes in a positive light. Should I talk to him? Well, obviously, if they're mentioning Andy Stanley and T.D. Jakes in a positive light, 
then they don't really either A, know what the two guys are teaching, or B, they're not aware of sound biblical theology. And if the latter is true, he's certainly not qualified to be a pastor. And as a pastor, he's called to protect his sheep. And Andy Stanley and T.D. Jakes are teaching really some gross, erroneous doctrine. A, Andy Stanley's view on the Old Testament, you could Google it and get all kinds of quotes that will cause you to shake in your boots and say, where is this guy coming from? And T.D. Jakes with his oneness Pentecostalism, uh, that's gross error too. Um, but lay that aside, if you're in a church where you have a male and a female pastor, and it's often a husband and wife, you know, whether it's Joel Olstein and his wife is called a pastor, or Creflo Dollar and his wife is called a pastor, and T.D. Jakes and his wife is called a pastor, those are men who are in disobedience to the plain historical teaching of the Word of God. And yes, I wouldn't go back for another Sunday. I would be out of there. All right, very good. Let's go to that live caller now who has been patiently waiting. And let me push the right button. There you go. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Pastor Brogy. Hi, good morning. Thanks for calling today. Okay, thank you. This is Jessica. My question is, in the, uh, black, Afro, the black American community, a lot of them are saying that there's racism in the Bible. They believe that the gospel in which we preach is just a quote-unquote white man's gospel. So how do we as Christians defend that from Scripture? And what is your textbook definition of racism compared to prejudiceness? Okay, it's a great question, Jessica. Let me, let me comment on it. The gospel is not a white man's gospel. It's not a black man's gospel. It's an everybody gospel. It's a whosoever will may come gospel. And to say that the Bible uh, is presenting a gospel that is racist. Now, there may be people who have misrepresented the Bible. But to say that the Bible itself is presenting a gospel that is racist is to say that the Bible is erroneous, that the Bible contains sinful um, methods, and it's to basically say that the Bible is not the infallible, incorruptible Word of God, and it is. And so, um, clearly, when you read the New Testament or the Old Testament, this is not a white man's gospel. By the way, Jesus is a Jew, and so he's not really white, um, if you saw Jesus today, he wouldn't be a white man with blue eyes and blonde hair. Um, it, neither would be, he be African. He would have probably a very deep olive-colored skin. We don't have a picture of Jesus, but that's typical of a Jew. Uh, with that said, um, clearly God is not a respecter of persons, Acts chapter 10 says. And so Peter, of course, the respecter of persons issue is another form of potential prejudice, but not racial prejudice. It was more religious prejudice in how Gentiles would fit into the church. And God gave Peter a vision, and uh, he had this sheet that came down and saw that, um, you know, what was in the sheet representing clean and unclean animals should both be eaten. 
uh, and God through the whole process was teaching Peter a very important truth that God is indeed not a respecter person. So you can read that in Acts 10 and Acts 11. And so um, we are told when he reports on what happened to Cornelius in his home, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I to stand in his way? And the Jews there glorified God because of what had taken place. You see, they knew Gentiles could be saved, and Gentiles were very much unlike them. The Jewish people were a particular ethnicity, and they knew they could be saved, but what they didn't understand is that these Gentiles would be in the same standing as that of a Jew, that the same Holy Spirit who had visited them and had come to dwelt them on the day of Pentecost was uh, now living inside of Gentiles as well. And so Peter opens his mouth in Acts ten thirty four, and he says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Does what is right here is respond to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God preaches peace through Jesus Christ, and he makes one body and the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, white and black, and every ethnicity in the world that you can think of is now erased and gone. So for a person to say that the Bible teaches racism is just to defy the plain truths of Scripture, and I could go through dozens of passages that teach that. Now, is there racism in the church? Of course there is. Uh, Number one, there's the false church, and there's the true church. There's the possessing church, and there's the professing church. There are people who possess salvation. They know the Lord God. And because of that, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so when you're a new creature in Christ, you have the mind of Christ and you have the ability to see things differently. And there are a lot of churches, black and white alike, and all other kinds of stripes and ethnicities in the world that are professing churches but not possessing churches. And sometimes they're ingrained with racism of one kind or another. Uh, because they don't know the living God. But sometimes even in the true church, because the people have not grown. If someone grew up in the South a hundred years ago, where they were just ingrained that black people were only a piece of property and uh, should be treated as slaves because they were tools and not people made in the image and likeness of God. And they were brought up in a culture that taught that 150 years ago. And then they are saved Um, the next day they have a new ability to hear truth and receive the mind of Christ, but they still have to receive the mind, uh, they still have to receive the truth that's going to guide the mind of Christ within them. And so that's a uh, a growth issue. And so not only are we saved by grace, but we are commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command of God. And if you think about it, the root of all racism, any kind of prejudice, whether it's educational prejudice, whether it's racial prejudice, whether it's an ethnicity prejudice, whether because you could have a white man who's of a different ethnicity and people have a prejudice against them, 
Uh, there were a lot of Christians after World War II who had a deeply felt ingrained prejudice against the German people because the Germans had exterminated six million Jews, number one, and two, they were our enemies uh, in World War II. And so, by the way, Jonah struggled with that. Jonah is the prophet who's called to go preach to the Ninevites. Remember, the Ninevites are one of three or four of Israel's worst enemies in their history. And so to go preach against, go preach salvation to the Ninevites, that was just unthinkable for him because he's a patriot and he loves Israel and he loves the Jewish people. You want me to go preach to my enemies? And God's point is, is that he loves even our enemies. He practices what he preached. Yes, I want you to go to preach to your enemies. So he runs in the wrong direction, the opposite direction. And of course, you know the rest of the story, the rest of the historical event that took place. It's not a story like a fairy tale, but you know the rest of what took place is historically recorded. And so the um, prodigal prophet becomes the praying prophet when his life is on the edge there in the belly of a great fish, and he becomes the preaching prophet, and then he becomes the pouting prophet in the fourth chapter. And God teaches him lessons about what he values, where people value um, sometimes patriotism or or race, or they value things, and, and God values people and things that people that he has made in his image. So, I say all that, that if you think about it, the root of all racism is not understanding grace. Because racism, again, whatever form, educational, ethnic, whatever form, is basically saying, I'm better than you. So if someone is rich and they think, I'm better than you. And Jesus says, listen, a man's life doesn't consist but of what he owns, you can be broke and be, in God's economy, one of the richest people in the world because he doesn't measure wealth always the way we do. Um, so a better-than-you attitude basically doesn't understand grace. And the gospel of grace shatters racism. It puts the ground level at the cross that we're all equally sinners, not to mention we are all from one blood. Um, I, Jessica, you and I are friends. I know you. You're an African-American, so to speak. And I am uh, a white man whose ethnicity goes back to Ireland and Italy. Um, But we are members of the same family of God, and we are saved the same way. And so we love each other in the Lord. And that's what happens when you hear the gospel of grace. And so the so-called professing church that doesn't possess salvation, they're just lost people. They're, they're just lost people and on their way to hell. And there are white churches like that. There are black churches like that. And every other kind of uh, ethnicity you can think of, they have a form of religion, but they deny the power thereof. But then there is an issue of sanctification where we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. That's a command. And so the more you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, the more your perspective changes. And so we're all related. We're all from Adam. And the races come, of course. Uh, the only explanation for the races that God gives is Genesis 10 and 11. Uh, man has no explanation for the races. 
Hitler had his. He was consistent with evolution, and he said some races were more evolved than others, and so black people and Jewish people in Hitler's theology, his false theology of God, Every man has a theology. Some it's true, for other it's false. He, he, he saw those people as deficient and his uh, people as superior. Uh, the gospel of grace shatters all that. And so when the people with one language tried to unite, God divided the languages. They, he brought Babel, the Hebrew word for confusion, And so you hung with people you could understand. You married within your language group, and the racial features developed. And that's true. You can go around the world. I I meet sometimes people. I walked into a store last month, and I said, Dobra Day. And I knew immediately that this person was um, Ukrainian because they had Ukrainian features because that nation, as they married within themselves, developed a certain feature and I can typically tell the difference between a Russian and a Ukrainian and so on and so forth. So um, any church that teaches the Bible is a, is a racist book or any church that teaches that, um, you know, uh, the gospel is a white man's gospel has never read the Bible. They are mishandling the word of God in Peter's words to their own destruction. Now, what should this look like practically? I think that if a church is doing its job, then the church should be multicultural if the community is multicultural. If you live in a community where there is no black people, then you wouldn't expect to see any black people in the church. You can't say, well, that's a segregated church. But if you live in a community where there's black people and Hispanic people and other Asian people and Indian people and German people and people from different nations. And and if you live in a community that has rich people and poor people and educated people and uneducated people, then that church should reach those people. And if they're not, they need to ask a hard question, why? Is their practice just to ask people who look like themselves or people only within their own circles? Certainly, if I'm African-American and I live uh, amongst a group of people on a street where everyone's African-American, then I might have an inroad in my sphere of influence that someone else might not have. But do I not invite, invite then white people? So if a church is all white in Buford County or if a church is all black in Buford County, they need to ask why. Is it because people won't come to their church or is it because they don't care to invite them and reach out and share the gospel? So, um, listen, uh, when we get to heaven someday, Caucasians only make up about 10% of the planet. And so if a person's going to heaven and think it's a white place, they haven't read the Bible very much because about 90% of the recipients in heaven aren't, aren't white Caucasians. And, and uh, they wouldn't be very happy there. Anyway, let's go to the next One question. One of my uh, favorite sermons you ever taught was from the book of James, The Case of the Prejudiced Usher. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. I think that would be a great that would. message for yeah. somebody to listen to yeah, if they have good. that concern. Mm-hmm. All right, a caller from Texas would like to know, what is the difference between head knowledge? Well, i uh, tell you what, we've got a, another live caller uh, standing by, so let me go to them real quick. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning. Hey, thanks for calling today. How can I be of help to you, my friend? Christians believe 
that everybody is a child of God, or also they believe just because a person can be a stripper or, or a drug dealer, and just because they go worship God, supposedly in quotation worshiping God, they still be considered a child of God. So there's Christians that believe that. So what do you think about that kind of belief system? Well, it's a good question. Um, in a creative sense, Malachi, in the book of Acts, Paul, when he uh, addresses the pagan Athenians, can use terminology that in a creative sense, we're children of God in that uh, we're made in the image and likeness of God. But in a spiritual sense, the Bible is definitive. It says, for instance, John one twelve, as many as received him, the him being the Lord Jesus Christ, that is to those who believe in his name, he has given the right to be called, to become the authority, to be considered exousia, children of God. And so the Bible is very clear. Now, I have five children, and they're my children and not yours because my life is in each of them. And when God looks down at 7.6 billion people on the planet, only those who have been born again, who have been inhabited by the Spirit of God, are deemed children of God. And so that's why we can call God as a born-again Christian, someone who's been born a second time, born from above, made members of the body of Christ, God our Father. Um, But the Scripture is clear that, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, Paul includes himself, I was once lost, we too, all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, Paul describes unbelievers as children of wrath, and he speaks of their lifestyle. So he mentions one of the things you mentioned, you know, some stripper who says, well, I'm born again. I'm a child of God. Well, I don't think so, because Paul is very plain. He puts some parameters in terms of how you define a child of God. He says, for instance, um, a little bit later in the same book, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person, or you could say no stripper or covetous man, or fornicator, or a man who sleeps with someone that he's not married to. You could, you know, broaden the list. Or a covetous man or an idolater has an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, this kind of lifestyle, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't do what they do. You're a member of a new kingdom. Don't be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you're in the light. Can a Christian partake of evil? Yes, a Christian could go out and commit adultery tomorrow. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, for there's no temptation that has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. 
But if this is my lifestyle, then I have proof positive that I am still by nature a child of wrath. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So what are we to do? Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light, this is what someone who is a child of light does, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn, underscore that in your thinking, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what a believer does. He wants to learn the things that are pleasing to God. And so, again, another text you could refer to would be John chapter 8, where there are people who, quote-unquote, believed him. That is, they gave intellectual knowledge to what Jesus said, but not a heart knowledge. And so the Bible speaks about those who believe about Jesus and those who believe in Jesus. Listen, the demons believe, but they're not saved, obviously. Um, And so in John 8, of so-called believers, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. That's what he said. Are they children of God? No, your father is not God the father. Your father is the devil. Well, we're Abraham's children. If you were Abraham's child, if you had the same kind of relationship to God that Abraham, then you'd do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're not doing the deeds of Abraham. So the Bible is clear. Listen, when a pastor says we're all children of God, he better qualify. If he means in a creative sense, great. But if he means in a spiritual sense, he is a false teacher and he is contributing to the damnation of souls. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right. Very good. Uh, As a matter of fact, you uh, touched on the next question a little bit, so maybe you'll expound. Uh, Caller from Texas would like to know, what is the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge? Well, um, there is a head component. There's an intellectual component to the gospel. It's kind of like getting married. You may intellectually know a person and conclude in your mind, you know, this would be a great fit for me. I, I, I want to marry this individual. I, I think I, I love this person. Emotionally, you can say, oh, I'm in love with this person. I, I want to marry this person. But you're not married just simply with some intellectual and emotional component. There's a willful component. And so when God describes the marriage, he describes it as a covenant. It's an act of the will where two people publicly acknowledge that they are going to live as husband and wife. There's the willful decision of how that unfolds. Now, I know sometimes people do before a justice of the peace. Sometimes people do it uh, before a notary republic. And uh, one couple came to me one day and they said, we just weren't, they were new Christians. We just want to make sure we're married. I said, what do you mean? Well, I went down to Beaufort County. We did like three years ago and we had the marriage license and the, uh, the, the clerk who, who does the stamp, I won't say her name, um, but she was just there listening and talking on the phone. Yeah, yeah, do this, fill out that line, and went back to the phone. Yeah, fill out this line. Yeah. And then she's still on the phone, bump, bump, put the stamp on it. You're married, goodbye. And, but were they married? Yes, they were. Why? Because they publicly said, we are going to live as husband and wife, period. And so um, that was a real marriage. Now, a Christian shouldn't do that. 
we should do it in a God-honoring way, but they weren't saved. And I know some saved people have done it in ignorance. They don't really uh, express marriage in a public, um, godly, Christ-honoring God-exalting way as they could have, but still they're married. So there's a willful decision. And so when you become a Christian, there are some people who have head knowledge of the gospel. Uh, What do you have to know to become a Christian? Well, you have to know that your sin has created a separation between you and your God, and that the wages of sin is death, and therefore there is zero that you can do except eternal death to righteously satisfy the demands that God has against sin. If you commit some heinous crime and the judge says you deserve death, you can say, well, judge, how about if I do community service? I see those prisoners out here in Beaufort County picking up trash. How about if I do that? I'll do it for the rest of my life. He'd say, oh, no, 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 no. Those prisoners didn't do what you did. They didn't murder anyone. Maybe they stole something at Walmart. Maybe they punched someone in the face, but they didn't murder anyone. Your crime deserves death. God says the wages of sin is death. God says the soul that sins must die. So contrary to popular belief, and the Bible states it twice over in the book of Proverbs in the 14th and then the 16th chapter, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. While it may seem logical and right to you that somehow you can make up for your sin through human effort, that's not true. Because, number one, you can never remove the stain of sin, and God is holy. And that's why God says whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. And number two, being good can't satisfy the penalty of sin, which is death. So God did that for us in Jesus Christ. You have to know that the gospel, it's articular, not just gospel, good news, but the gospel, the good news, which is the power of God for salvation, Paul says, is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. You don't have to be a great theologian to become a Christian. You don't have to have a certain level of IQ. God doesn't say, well, only people who, you know, have just an intellectual prowess of 150 and above can become Christians. Then God would be a respecter of persons. God made it simple enough a child can get it. So you don't have to be a person of great intellect. But you do have to understand that you're bankrupt, that good works can't save you, and that there's only one name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. Only he can save you by his death, burial, and resurrection. So you come to him with your sin. You're willing to call sin, sin. See, I I met someone recently. They told me they were born again, but they've been living with this individual for six years to whom they're not married. I said, you're not born again. If you were born again, you would not practice adultery as a lifestyle, and that's what you're doing. You're practicing adultery as a lifestyle. Let no one deceive you. Because of these things I just read, the wrath of God comes upon unbelievers. Well, I prayed the sinner's prayer. No, it's not just praying a prayer. You come to God with your sin. You're willing to call adultery adultery, that, it, that it's wrong and it needs forgiveness through the cross. If you're not willing to call it wrong, you don't need forgiveness yet. And so God will often put his finger on a particular sin to highlight the problem in a person's life so that they will see their need for truly a Savior who can forgive them and change them. 
So with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. There's a decision of the will to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. So I hope that helps. You might want to listen to, would you like to know God is your friend? It's online at both searchthescriptures.org and at communitybiblechurch.us. Is it on the radio website, net too? A link to it is, yes. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, All right. there you that- go. I think we've got time for one more quick question. Uh, Paul from Savannah, Georgia writes, I've been happily married for over 20 years, have two sons, a freshman and senior in high school. There's no question my entire family has been saved by the grace of God and our belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We regularly attend a Bible-believing church, but I've not found a pastor that preaches through the Bible as you do and with the clarity and detail you provide. I'd really like to start taking at least one night per week for my family to listen and watch, uh, search the scriptures for all of us to deepen our knowledge of the Bible. And I'm writing to find out what series or book you would suggest that I start with in this regard. Should I start with Genesis or is there another series or lessons that you would recommend? Thanks for your advice. Well, um, since you have two sons, one a freshman and one a senior, let me give you the short run experience. I would go to the Back to Basics series that you will find at searchthescriptures.org. This is what we call the discovery class. It's 45 weeks long, but I have about 33 of those weeks online. Uh, I got as far as um, uh, towards the end of the course, we do what is apologetics, why should we be interested in Christian apologetics, and then I do the first two of the 10 most commonly asked questions. Um, but prior to that, it's the mechanics of how to walk with God. So since you have someone who's a senior and he's going to be out of your home potentially in six months off at the university, I'd say in the short run, that's where I would start. Um, the Back to Basics course is just foundational. And if Dr. Billy Graham is correct, 90 to 95% of the Christians in America have never had that foundation planted in their heart. And so they've remained baby Christians. So I, I, so I would do that first. If you're going to do some books, I would say two foundational books would be Genesis and Acts. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Barashit bara Elohim. In the beginning created God. Uh, the heavens and the earth. So the the word Barashit is the name of the book of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible. The first five books, we use Greek names. Uh, they use um, right out of the first verse of the first five books. They name the first five books based on that. So um, do the book of beginnings first, the book of Genesis I would do that first, and then I would do the book of Acts, which is kind of the book of beginnings in the New Testament. And those two books will give you kind of the big picture, broad view of things, whether it's salvation, whether it's Israel, and so forth. But then for a doctrinal book, I would do the book of Romans. Romans is really the constitution of Christianity. It has every major biblical doctrine in the New Testament unfolded. And Romans would be a great study. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. 